0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. It's great to see you this morning. And if you have a Bible, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there is a a blue church Bible on the ground near you at the end of the, the row of chairs that you're sitting at, and you can follow along with me in Genesis 1 on page 1. Last week we started a new series called Origins, and last week uh, we looked at uh, the story of creation and how the story of what God is do- has done in creation and is doing in our world orients us to life in a very disorienting world. And um, one of the things that we saw last week is that um, our life functions best when we realize that we are not the main character In the story that the story is ultimately about God and he is the main character but we do have a part to play in the story and so this morning we're going to look narrow in uh, zoom in on the details of what does it mean to be human and so if you would would you uh, stand with me as we give our attention to God's Word and I'm going to read Genesis 1 starting at verse 26 And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And this is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, would you speak to us by uh, your ancient word, by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you calm the noise of our lives? Would you calm the chaos in our own hearts? Would you help us to see uh, the goodness of who you are as we reflect this morning on the way that you have made us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. The story of the Velveteen Rabbit is a children's classic. The Velveteen Rabbit is the story of a A rabbit, a stuffed animal, that was given to a boy on Christmas morning. And the story says that for at least two hours, the boy loved him. But then his aunt and uncle showed up, and they opened more toys, and he got toys with a wind-up mechanism, and they were more exciting than the velveteen rabbit, and the velveteen rabbit was forgotten and he was stuffed into a cupboard in the nursery and the other toys in the nursery snubbed him and so he sat alone in the cupboard for a long time and he thought about what it might mean to be real. And he thought that maybe being real means you can move, you have a wind-up mechanism and that would make you real or maybe being real means you have a handle sticking out of your back. Sounds like a plus, doesn't it? Maybe if you buzzed and made noise that that would be being real. And the Velveteen Rabbit was afraid that because he didn't buzz or have a handle, that he would never be a real rabbit. This is a story that has uh, resonated with people for a long time. I, had, um, I was surprised twice this week, I was carrying the book around in my, in my briefcase all week, and, and twice this week, somebody saw it and said, are you going to talk about that this week? And kind of with like nostalgic you know, eyes, um, you know, I love the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. The story of the Velveteen Rabbit was published in 1922. And uh, most of us have re- have read it as children. Many of us have read it to our own children. And, um, you know, we read it to our kids last night because I had to make sure I had the details right. <laughs> and my wife and I both keep looking at each other with tears in our eyes. I'm struggling to get through this. Why does the story of the Velveteen Rabbit resonate with us? Why has it resonated with people for so long? I think the reason is because it's such a great story, a great parable of what it feels like to be human. The Velveteen Rabbit is a uh, story that taps into the tension that we all feel because on the one hand, we have this sense that we were made for more than what we currently experience. Uh, We have this sense... That we were made for greatness, that we were made to be, uh, that we were made with glory, that we are incredible creatures. And we haven't quite achieved our destiny yet. And on the other hand, we also have this sense that we are actually pretty, pretty ordinary. We have this sense that if people really knew what we were like, the, the Velveteen Rabbit uh, at one point runs into these real rabbits. And they're talking to him, and he discovers that he doesn't actually have hind legs. And he's embarrassed that if these real rabbits knew that he didn't have hind legs, that, that they would snub him and that he would feel that he would know that he's not real. And we, like the Velveteen Rabbit, have the sense that maybe we're not quite whole. Maybe we're not. Maybe people really knew us as we are, that they wouldn't like us. The story of the Velveteen Rabbit is, a story that, uh, is the story of each one of us. We long to be real. We long for greatness, and yet we are dependent on somebody else to make us feel loved. We're in the middle of this series called Origins, and we're talking about uh, these early chapters of the book of Genesis because they tell us where we came from and who we are and what went wrong with the world and what God is doing to make it right again. And we're looking this morning at this passage about the image of Of God says that God created humanity in His own image, and this is crucial for us to live meaningful, flourishing lives. The image of God is not uh, one of those kind of finer points of theology that uh, you know sounds interesting if you're into that sort of thing, but it's really kind of abstract and removed. The image of God in each one of us is crucial to living a life as a flourishing human being. It's crucial to understanding what it means to be real. And so we have to be honest. We live in a time where there's a lot of confusion, isn't there, about what it means to be human. Uh, at the risk of oversimplification, there are really two stories that our culture tells us about who we are as human beings. What does it mean to be human? And uh, the first um, Approach to answering that question is what we might call the the sort of scientific, secular um, understanding of human beings, and that's uh, not to say that everybody who's a scientist um, subscribes to this, but the general consensus of the scientific community. Um, imagine a group of doctors, and they're huddled around a patient, and there's a patient who is just not getting any better. And as these doctors are huddled around this patient, trying to figure out what is wrong with him, and how can we help, and this patient is severely uh, depressed. One of the doctors maybe in the back of the, the huddle. Maybe he's just a, a resident, he's just an intern. And uh, this, this uh, new doctor says something like, well, what he really needs wouldn't even take much medicine, really. He just needs to be reassured of his, of his value, of his dignity, that he is significant. And the other doctors kind of turn and look at this naive young person and say, why in the world would you ever say that? Uh, Human beings are maybe more complex than other organisms, but they have no more inherent dignity. They have no more inherent value than anyone else. That's one understanding of what it means to be human beings, very complex, but essentially just like everything else in the world. We die just like everyone else on the other hand we have what we might call the sort of secular therapeutic therapeutic approach now you can turn on the TV and find this you can pick up any magazine as you're standing in line at the checkout stand and uh, you can listen to you know I don't know, is dr. Phil still on <laughs> Oprah right well, turn on any of these shows and, and what are you going to hear what you really need to do is you need to learn how to love yourself, right? Now what's wrong with that approach? Well, um, the problem is that, like, I can't. <laughs> People, everybody's great until you actually get to know them, right, most of all ourselves. If all, if I, I mean, just try right now, like, whatever's going on in your life, just love yourself, okay, just let it go. You can't do it, can you? Because um, though Oprah might be able to, like, give away cars to everybody in the audience, um, you, I mean, you think about this You like, get a car, you go home And like, life is still life, right? And so the sort of secular therapeutic approach Is kind of just saying like, If we just psych ourselves into it We'll be like, yeah, th- yeah, I really am great But in those quiet moments We know that that's like building A foundation of tissue paper That is supposed to uphold the weight of who we are And it can never really It can never really stand it G.K. Chesterton kind of wrote about this paradox like this. He says, as a politician, the secular person will cry out that all war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher will admit that all life is a waste of time. The secular person goes first to a political meeting where he complains that the natives are being treated as if they were beasts, and then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that all human beings actually are beasts. You see the, the kind of flip-flopping, the, the, the paradox, uh, uh, it's not really a paradox, it's, you know, we, we're trying to believe on the one hand we're just like every other thing that's physical matter that will pass away, and yet somehow convince ourselves that we really are special and unique and loved. And it is profoundly disorienting. What does it mean to be real? And how do we become real? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the image of God. So the image of God, what does it mean? And how can it be restored in us? So firstly, what does it mean? What does the image of God mean? Okay, um, the image of God. There are three things that I want you to try to, um, that I want to try to communicate to you that it means that we are created in the image of God. And here's what they are. The The fact that we are created in the image of God means that we are strong and that we are weak and that we are made to reflect the glory of another. So first, to be human means that we were created with strength. We were created with authority. On um, Genesis 1:28, God says to the man and the woman the human beings that he has created, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. You know, in the whole story of creation, human beings are the only creatures, the only creative things to whom God gives a job. The rest of creation simply is, but he gives, God gives responsibility to steward the earth to human beings. And not, just does, not only does he give us the, uh, the responsibility to steward the earth, he actually gives us the authority to do the work that he's called us to do. So the tragedy of being human is not that we have authority. The tragedy of being human is the way that we misuse our authority. Once sin enters into the world, we use our authority, we use our strength, and in fallen, broken, sinful ways, we use our strength to hurt people. We use our strength to manipulate people. Um, We use our strength to withhold from others uh, what they need to flourish. But the problem is not authority. Authority is not inherently destructive. Anyone who's ever tried to accomplish something meaningful in life has done it by exercising authority. I mean, think about any aspect of our lives. We have authority in our work. Uh, We have parents have authority in their homes. Teachers have authority in their classrooms. Authority simply means the capacity for meaningful action. So authority can be misused, but authority isn't inherently destructive. God created us as people who were meant to do things and do them well in our world. In fact, a lack of authority results in frustration. Imagine if you're trying to accomplish something, but you aren't able to get it done. You don't have the authority to get it done. You're frustrated. Um, a lack of authority can result in suffering. God has created us to interact meaningfully in, the, in a life-giving way in the world that he's created us to live in. So he's given us strength. He's given us authority. But the second thing, impaired paired with that authority, is he's also created us with weakness. He's created us with vulnerability. And we see this um, throughout Genesis 1 and 2 in several ways. Um, we see it in the fact that we were created. I mean simply by the fact that God created human beings. We are not self-existence. We are dependent on another for life. We see it in Genesis 2 when God says that it's not good for human beings to be alone. It's not, we are not sufficient. On our own, we all know this kind of intuitively that a lonely human being is a hurting human being. Uh, we see it in Genesis three. when God forbids Adam and Eve from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there are things that are not good for us because uh, we are weak because we are vulnerable. And what I want to emphasize here is this that our weakness Our vulnerability is not because we are sinful. It is not because we are broken. It is because of the way God has created us. And of course, in our sin, our sin twists, our sin warps, our sin distorts and damages us. But even without sin in the picture, human beings are vulnerable. And that is a good thing. That is the way that God created us. It's kind of, I think, become a little bit more um, commonplace in the last couple of years for us to talk about vulnerability. Um, Brene Brown in her TED talk a few years ago, it's been watched by millions and millions of people um, online, talked about the power of vulnerability and the thing she says in there, one of the things she says in this TED talk is that vulnerability is the first thing we look for in other people but it's the last thing that we actually want to reveal ourselves. But she goes on to explain that really vulnerability and letting our guard down is the necessary ingredient of meaningful interaction with other human beings because you can't create relationships, you can't build community unless you're willing to let your guard down. And so I think we've entered into a place in our culture where at least, um, I don't know, the idea of vulnerability is a little bit more palatable to us. And yet... um, I think what Genesis 1 is, is pointing us to is actually more, more profound than what we get on the internet, because we could walk away from the Brene Brown TED Talk with the impression that vulnerability just means kind of being open and honest about the fact that we're all screwed up, or like being open about, be like being transparent about our emotions. And we all know that social media is a place where we can go to sort of be vulnerable in a very carefully curated sort of way, right? I can present just enough emotion to actually, you know, make it look like I'm being vulnerable, but I haven't actually let my guard down in a meaningful way. And so actually vulnerability in that sense can be manipulative. But Andy Crouch in his book Strong and Weak, um, he talks about vulnerability and he says that real vulnerability means exposure to meaningful risk And so that kind of vulnerability, um, exposure to meaningful risk, it it might involve uh, letting your emotions show, but it might not. He gives the example of the Old Testament prophets, when the kings are acting like fools, it's the job of the prophet to go in and tell the truth to the king. Now, the prophet doesn't say anything about how he feels about anything, but he's risking losing his head by by speaking the truth to the king, right? And so the prophets are being vulnerable in that sense. It's this sort of a, a vulnerability and the combination of both vulnerability and um, authority that make us human. Most of us I think tend to think that the goal in life is to move away from weakness and into strength. We want to become you know less weak and more strong, but actually what the Bible would lead us to believe is that there's a a leaning into both our authority and our vulnerability that increases our flourishing. Weakness without strength leads to suffering, but strength without weakness, or strength without vulnerability, leads to oppression, it leads to manipulation, it leads to hurting people. And yet when strength and weakness, authority and vulnerability are combined, the result is true human flourishing. Uh, We all know the, the quote, well maybe we don't all know the quote, But uh, with great power comes great, what? Responsibility. Responsibility. Either Superman or Voltaire said that. I uh, found both on the internet. What's that mean, though? It means that we expect that those who are strong to care for people who are less strong. Right? Um, And that requires risk. Somebody told me a couple weeks ago, He said, this week, I was supposed to fire five people, and we had to let go of two of them, but three of them, we were able to move them into a different position. We were able to save their jobs. That's, That's what flourishing looks like. That's combining authority with vulnerability, opening ourselves up to meaningful risk. I think we all know inherently, in a sense, that anything worthwhile doing in life is going to require risk whether it's starting a new business or a new relationship or having children, right? Yeah, we're going to have children without opening ourselves up to risk, right? Or adopting children, Um, standing up for someone else. Anything great that we actually accomplish in life requires that we exercise authority, but we do so in a way that is vulnerable, that that opens ourselves up to real risk at the same time. Okay, so being human requires both, or involves both weakness and strength, um, authority and vulnerability. But the third thing about being human is this that being human means that we possess reflected glory. Uh, Think about the simple statement that the way God chooses to describe human beings is that we are images. We are created in the image of God. What does it mean to be an image? Well, it means that there is an original, which is what we are not. And then there is something that reflects uh, the, the you know, the essence of the original. Um, an image implies that there 's an original, but we are a reflection of the original in the velveteen rabbit the The bunny <clears throat> has been ignored by the boy he 's been shoved into the back of this cupboard, and there he meets the skin horse and the skin horse is old, and he 's been around for a long time and he 's the wisest of all the animals in the nursery. And so the Velveteen Rabbit says to the skin horse, how does, what does it mean to be real? And the skin horse tells the Velveteen Rabbit, real is something that doesn't, that ha- sorry, real is something that happens to you when a child loves you. It doesn't happen all at once, it takes a long time. Becoming real is painful. By the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes have dropped out. The process of becoming real is uncomfortable. But it's not something we can accomplish on our own because we are not the original. We were created as images to reflect the glory of the God who created us. Again, if you watch, you know, whatever the pop feel-good stuff tells you, uh, you know, you've got to learn to love yourself. What is that saying? It's saying that the source of happiness in your life Is you that you are the source of your own life it's like trying to plug a lamp into itself and being confused about why it doesn't light up a lamp doesn't light up unless it's connected to an external source of energy and it's the same way with us we cannot be truly alive and yes unless we reflect the glory of a source of light that is outside of ourselves And so as a a culture, we have an entire culture of people and we're telling ourselves that we determine our future, that we determine what's right and wrong, that we determine what will make us happy. And yet, um, by any measure, we are less happy than we have ever been as a culture. We are more distracted, we are more medicated, we are busier, we are the most affluent culture that the world has ever been, and yet we are the least happy group of people to ever walk the face of the earth. Why could that possibly be? Well, here's why. Because you cannot be the source of your own life. You weren't created that way. But there's one who is the source of life, and he created you to reflect his glory, his life, his goodness, his essence. You are the moon. You are not the sun. You are created to reflect the glory of the God who created you. And so that's why every human life has value. Every human life has dignity, not because you're more complex, not because you have more potential. Um, Listen, if you walk into a room, let's say you walk into your boss's office and you close the door and you see on the back of the door there's a dartboard and it's got your picture on it, (laughs) right? And there's darts through your face. Like, you know what that means, right? It's not a good thing. God has created us like a mirror. He's created us like a, His image. He fills the earth with His images, pictures of Himself. And when we hurt other people, when we oppress other people, when we don't stand up for the vulnerable, it's like throwing a dart in the image of God Himself. We were made in such a way that we get our life we get who we are from something outside of ourselves. We're not, the imi- we're not the original, we're an image. And that is good, and that is God. How, how God made us. But here's the problem. When sin enters into the world, I mean, all of that I just said, that's true in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, before sin, before brokenness, before sickness and disease and manipulation and hurting and pain. But as soon as sin enters into the world... What happens is this that we were created not to be the source of our own life but to get our source of to get our life from something outside of ourselves. And as soon as sin enters into the world, we still need to get our life from something outside of ourselves but we no longer look to God to be the source of our life. And so instead of looking to God, we look to anything and everything to give us life. We look to our work, to what we can accomplish, we look to our relationships, we look to The fact, I mean, some of us, like, we look to not looking to anything, but that becomes the thing that we think if we're just so cool and aloof and above everything, that then we would really be living. We look to things that are not necessarily evil or wrong in themselves, but they cannot bear the weight of all that we are, and so they cannot give us life, and because of that, we walk around empty. And in our emptiness, we use our authority to hurt people, and in our weakness, we, or in our vulnerability, we use our weakness as an excuse to be passive and to withdraw from the world around us. In our sin, the image of God remains in us, and yet in a ruined state. We are still glorious, and yet we are in ruins. It's like if you go, um, if you go on vacation to Europe, and you go to the UK, or you go to Greece, or wherever you go, and you go uh, see these... Um, ancient cathedrals or these ancient castles and they're glorious and yet often they're in ruins. They're still beautiful and yet they are not accomplishing the the function for which they were created. And that's just like us as human beings. Even in our fallen state, even our sinful state, we are still glorious and yet we are a glorious mess. The image of God in me and in you is glorious and yet marred. And so the question then becomes, how can the image of God be restored in us? Well, in order for the image of God to be restored in you, you have to gaze upon the one who perfectly reflects God's image now. Let me say that again. In order for the image of God to be restored in you, you have to gaze upon the one who perfectly, who perfectly displays the image of God now. So here's what that means. First, who perfectly reflects the image of God? Well, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so what Jesus is telling us, what the Bible is telling us, is that Jesus is the only perfect image of God that there is. Jesus fully and perfectly reflects the image of God now. Okay, so is that good news that Jesus is the perfect image of God? Well, I think it depends. Um, it depends in what way he functions as the image of God. Because, um, so in Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John, the curtain is kind of pulled back, and John is given this vision of what is really happening, when what's really true in the universe. And the first thing that he sees is an image, or he, see, he gets this vision of Jesus in his glory. And he says, I saw one and his eyes burned like fire and his hair was white like wool and I fell down like I was dead. He says, I saw the glory of Jesus, the unvarnished glory of Jesus, and it terrified me. So to see Jesus only in his glory and in his power and in his strength would be our undoing. In our fallenness and our brokenness and our sinfulness, if the true image shows up, That would be the end of us. And so we need to see Jesus not just in his glory, but we need to see how he came to us. And Philippians 2 describes Jesus like this. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though Jesus was God, he didn't cling to the strength of divinity, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see what it's saying? Genesis 1 says God created man, humanity, in the image of God. Philippians 2 says God took on the image of man. Isn't that incredible? What does he do? The image of God comes, takes on the image of man, and empties himself. He comes in weakness. He makes himself vulnerable. Jesus is the, uh, of all human beings that have ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus did so with more authority, more strength, more power than anyone. And yet he doesn't cling to divinity. But he allows himself in his weakness and his vulnerability to be misunderstood. Um, to be abused. To be essentially lynched he submits to the oppression of a corrupt government and he hangs naked on a roman cross he's killed he doesn't cling to his strength but he gives it up now if you've been around the church for any length of time we hear about the cross it's easy to think well but jesus was god and so yeah he died on the cross but he knew that Easter was coming. He knew the resurrection was coming. But what Philippians 2 says is that he emptied himself. When Jesus goes to the cross, he hangs there, and he gives himself over to God the Father, and he has no idea what is going to happen next to him. That's a beautiful picture of Jesus, the perfect image of God, coming to us in both strength and And weakness with authority and vulnerability. Now when we see that, I don't know about you, but I think that's really inspiring. And yet if we just leave it there, I don't actually think that's good news. See, there's a way to see the story of Jesus and his perfect life and his giving up himself on the cross, his sacrificial death, that is essentially just the story of one man who was a really good example. And so the the implication then is to go out and try really, really hard to be like Jesus. But there's another way to look at the story of Jesus. And that is to look at Jesus and see that um, the way, the life of Jesus is a picture of the life that I was meant to live. And yet it's a life that I am fundamentally incapable of living. And so Jesus therefore lived it on my behalf. I was made... Um, I could never be the person that I was made to be but Jesus came to reflect the image of God perfectly and when I see that he did that for me all I want to do is look at his beauty all I want to do is gaze at his goodness you see one response to Jesus is to see him as an example of someone I should be but it's only when we see him not only as our example but actually the one who is accomplishing for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves that we are transformed into the people that God created us to be. If you have a Bible, um, I want to invite you to turn with me, if you can, quickly, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In those blue Bibles, it's on page 965. And I'm inviting you to turn there because I'm going to say something about this, but you could think about this passage for a long time. What Paul is talking about in, in 2 Corinthians 3 is he's saying that there's a kind of person who reads the Bible, there's a kind of person who comes to church, there's a kind of person who um, knows things about God, and yet doesn't know that that the gospel is true. It's a person who doesn't know that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sin. And that sort of a person which describes, you know, many of us at times at different times in our lives or has described us at different times in our lives the way paul talks about that kind of person it's like they're reading the bible they're coming to church they're engaging in kind of christian things but they're doing it as if they have a veil over their eyes and they're they're, you know there's this cloud and they can't really see what's actually true And then there's the kind of person who, um, well, what Paul's saying, when this person reads the Bible, there's a veil over their understanding, but when they put their trust in Jesus, the veil is taken away, and they can see what the Bible is actually saying. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, when the Bible in the New Testament says the Lord, it's talking about Jesus So we all, when we behold Jesus, the glory of Jesus with an unveiled face, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we see Jesus knowing that he lived and died and rose again for our sin, the veil is taken away from our eyes. And we gaze upon him and gazing upon him, we become more and more like him. The reality is that we are always intrigued by whatever we find beautiful. I mean, have you ever had the experience of like uh, Zillow tells you this beautiful house came on the market and you just have to drive by it on the way home from work, right? Or, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we find beautiful is intriguing. And we gaze on it. We, we keep coming back to it. And our hearts are drawn more and more towards that which we find beautiful. So, the question then is what is going to take you, your soul, and fill you so that when you go out into the world, if you go out into the world empty, looking for anyone and anything to fill you, then you are going to trample on the image of God and other people. In your strength, uh, you will hurt and manipulate. And in your weakness and vulnerability, you will overshare and you will be passive. But Paul says that if you learn to read the Bible and if you see Jesus and what he's done for you, that that will transform you into his likeness. When you are so overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus and what he has done for you, you can't stop coming back to him and work. you will become inevitably like what it is that you worship. So here's what that means. You are a mirror. You're not the original. You are created to reflect the glory of the God who created you. And therefore, depending on what it is that you reflect, you will either be going out into the world to spread life or you will go out into the world and spread death. If you go out into the world empty, you will spread death as you trample on those and others in an attempt to fill yourself up. But if you go out into the world full, then you will go out into the world in both weakness and authority to love and serve everyone you come into contact with. So let me finish by just telling you a, one story of what that looks like in real life. I have a friend named Sean, and Sean is a uh, pastor in another part of the country. And when Sean went to college, um, he was not a Christian his freshman year in college. And he, uh, he went to college, and he joined a fraternity, and he started dating this girl that he really liked. And midway through Sean's freshman year, his RA, Anthony, began... Just showing up in his dorm room and Anthony every night would come over and he would sit down on the couch in Sean's dorm room and he would just hang out there. And what Sean didn't know was that Anthony had recently become a Christian. And Anthony started showing up in Sean's dorm room because right after he became a Christian, Sean had heard a sermon In which uh, he was said you know it it was said that um, God loves you even when you were his enemy and so Anthony prayed and said God if you loved me when I was your enemy then who is my enemy that you are calling me to love now and he knew right away that the answer was my friend Sean because Anthony had tried to get into that same fraternity that Sean was in, but was turned away because he was a black man. And that girl that Sean started dating was actually Anthony's girlfriend. And Sean or Anthony, understandably, hated Sean, but he was full in Jesus. And so day after day, night after night, he get, he went into Sean's dorm room and sat down on the couch where Sean, like an idiot, had hung a Confederate flag on the wall. And this black man who had stolen his girlfriend and was just, you know, a total idiot, he just sat there and loved him. And that's how Sean eventually became a Christian. That's an incredible story of how Sean meeting Jesus, or sorry, Anthony, meeting Jesus, being filled with the love of Christ, allowed him to go out into the world, not in, you know, an authoritative, abusive sort of way, or not in simply a passive way, but to go out with strength and weakness, authority and vulnerability, and love uh, this man that had hurt him. If we go out into the world empty, we will use our strength to oppress others. And if we go out in weakness, or if we go out empty, we, we, we will allow our weakness uh, to become passive and withdraw. But if we gaze on the image of, G- of God in Christ, the perfect image of God, we will be intrigued by His beauty, and we will gaze upon Him, and we will be filled with Him. And then, like Anthony, we will be able to go out into the world filled with the love of Christ in and strength, And weakness, and love those that we come into contact with. That's what it means to be human. Will you pray with me? God, we can hardly comprehend that you made us in your image. But what is even more startling than that is that you who are God, you who are Infinite, you who are perfect, actually took on our image. Jesus, you took on our weakness and showed it what it showed us what it ought to look like. You came um, with power, and yet you used your power not to wipe us out, but to heal us. And Jesus, I pray that this morning we would. Um, be reminded maybe for the first time that we would come to know that you came into the world not just as an example but as our substitute as the one who gave up his life using your strength making yourself weak so that we might be healed would you change us would you help us to behold your glory so that we might reflect it it back to a broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.